Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloem. NASA's new mission is named Psyche for the asteroid it's going to explore. It's a fascinating blend of science and technology, and the target for its exploration is truly intriguing. Asteroid Psyche, the 16th ever discovered back in 1852, is a metallic asteroid. It may offer interesting clues into the evolution of planetary bodies since the cores of terrestrial planets like Mars, Earth, and Venus are all metallic made mostly of iron and nickel. We'll examine the Psyche spacecraft mission from both a science and engineering perspective. Later on in the show, we'll hear from Sam Corville, a graduate student from Arizona State University who's a member of the Psyche science team. And we'll hear about a revolutionary communications demonstration that the spacecraft will perform using lasers to communicate high bandwidth data to Earth with NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory engineer A.B. Biswas. But first, let's find out about some of the basic engineering involved in the Psyche mission with two members of the NASA JPL engineering team, Paige Arthur and Kalen Oldani. They join us now from JPL in Pasadena. Paige and Kalen, welcome to Blue Dot. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Well, I'd like to know first, like uh, just a little bit about, um, let's start with you, Paige. Uh, when did you first get involved with this, this mission? Uh, I've been involved with Psyche for five years now. I think my five-year anniversary is coming up next week. Um, I've been on it as long as I've been on JPL after I graduated. And where did you graduate from? University of Colorado Boulder. I got a joint BSMS degree there in aerospace engineering. Cool. And what about you, Kaylin? Yeah, so I am similar to Paige. Psyche is my first mission. Uh, I started in January of 2021, so I'm close to three years. Uh, working on Psyche. And then I graduated from the University of Michigan, also with a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering. Okay, go Wolverines. Yeah, go Blue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it, we've got a launch coming up. Are, are things on schedule for launch on October 5th? Yeah, definitely. Um, we're a little, we were a little bit behind there for a year, but we definitely have caught up and now we're uh, stronger than ever. And are you both going to be there for the launch? Yes, we will both be there on launch day. Uh, Paige is on the primary team and I am on the backup launch team. So we will both be there for launch day uh, and ready to go. And it's going to be launching on a SpaceX Falcon Heavy, which is a truly majestic rocket. That's going to be quite an experience. Um, Paige, what kind of role do you play during the day, during launch day or, you know, the 24 hour lead up? Yeah, so I'll be sitting the command chair on console for ATLO, which is Assembly Test Launch and Operations. There's going to be three of us who are on console. Um, the test conductor is kind of in charge of the operations that are going on. Um, command, which is me, is responsible for sending any commands that the test conductor tells me to. And then the systems chair is monitoring all systems to make sure that the telemetry all looks nominal. And can you just tell us briefly about your roles as far as, you know, engineers working on, on the spacecraft? Um, what, what kinds of things have you been working on the last few years? Let's start with you, uh, Kaylin. Yeah, so uh, Paige and I are both systems engineers on the assembly, test, and launch operations team. So that stands for, we call it ATLO, um, as engineers love our acronyms. Uh, so on the ATLO team, we work as a team to assemble, test, and launch the spacecraft. So we put all the pieces together, test them out, make sure they function well, 
And once everything looks good, we then are there on launch day on console and command the spacecraft on and send it up into space. Very cool. So yeah, you're 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 basically help put the put the spacecraft together, make sure it works, and then off she goes. Uh, that that's an awesome job. Let's talk about the spacecraft itself. Uh, Paige, can you describe it to us in terms of you know, how big is this spacecraft? Uh, it's the size of a probably a large car. Um, just the the chassis of it, and then the solar arrays, when fully extended, um, take up about the surface area of a tennis court. Okay, well, uh, one of the most interesting things to me about um, Psyche is the propulsion system, because it's really interesting and unique. So, um, which one of you would like to take a stab at describing that to us? Kaylin is probably more of an expert there than I am. (laughs) Yeah, so it's funny that you mentioned the propulsion system. That's actually the reason I really wanted to work on Psyche. Uh, All throughout college and my master's, I worked in our electric propulsion department at Michigan, and I have loved electric propulsion ever since. Uh, Psyche is super unique because we actually have hull thrusters that are going to be traveling into deep space. So it is the first space mission to bring hull thrusters into deep space. Uh, So those hull thrusters are very exciting and yeah, I'm super excited to see them fly. Tell us a bit about the physics of the hull thrusters, the the SPT, the stationary plasma, thrusters. Tell tell us a little bit about the physics of how they actually work. Yeah, so uh, in normal rockets, uh, everything works by conservation of momentum. So you explode a large amount of material, throw it out behind you, and that propels you forward. Hull thrusters work in a similar fashion. It's just instead of exploding a bunch of material and shooting that out behind you, uh, you are actually um, ionizing a gas, and then those ions are being Uh, thrust out behind you with an electric field. So that is actually what then propels the spacecraft forward. So it's it's a lot lower thrust. So you can think of it like uh, the amount of thrust you get is about the same as a battery weighing down on your hand. So it's very low thrust, but it's super efficient. Uh, So we're actually able to create uh, large delta Vs, uh, so large change in velocity from that to actually get us to the asteroid uh, very efficiently. So if I'm if I'm understanding right, it, that means you can actually like run these longer, you know, instead of just firing rockets for you know a short period of time. The idea behind the hull thrusters is you can just you know kind of continuously be using them or longer periods of time to build up that acceleration. Yes, that's correct. So uh, we'll have those hull thrusters on pretty much the entire lifetime of the mission. Uh, there's only a few points and times where we'll have to turn them off for a specific. Uh, science instruments and such. But for the bulk of the time that we're cruising our way over to Psyche, those thrusters will be on. Very cool. Has, have any other uh, NASA spacecraft used this method of propulsion? Yeah, so Dawn used uh, ion thrusters, so not the same as hull thrusters, but uh, similar electric propulsion. Um, the most recent mission to, uh, or not most recent mission, sorry. Um, so the only other mission to use a uh, Hull thrusters out past Earth orbit is uh, actually an ESA mission, SMART-1. So we will be breaking their record by going out past the moon and uh, past Mars and all the way out to Psyche. And you mentioned in school you got really interested in this. Well, how, how did, tell, tell me a little bit about how that came about, because it sounds like this is something you really, you know, you found yourself interested in something, and now you get to put it into practice. That's amazing. Yeah, well, ever since I was a kid, I knew I loved rockets. Um, I always thought space travel would be super cool. 
So when I got to college and uh, started focusing in aerospace engineering, I learned about electric propulsion just from my first introduction to propulsion class. And ever since then, I just thought it was really interesting. Uh, it combined my love for physics with my love for propulsion and learning about the both of them. I just think it's super cool technology and uh, it's very awesome that I get to work on a spacecraft that gets to uh, use that. Yeah, that is. Okay, Paige, what about the power supply for the spacecraft? Is it is solar panels? Yeah, we're um, so, solar. We're a so, solar-powered spacecraft, so that solar energy comes in, gets absorbed through the panels. Um, we've got a battery on board that can store it when, if we're in eclipse and we're not seeing the sun. Um, at that point in time, we can draw energy off of the batteries, and then that energy gets put into the propulsion system and becomes the um, electric propulsion system that, that Kaylin was just describing. Okay, launch is October 5th. How long will it take Psyche to get to, to the asteroid Psyche? It'll take six years, so it'll get there in 2029. And is there is this, can you describe the trajectory to us a, a bit? Yeah, so we're going to go out past Mars, and then we're actually going to come back in close to Mars and do a gravity assist at it. So we're stealing some of Mars's gravity, but thankfully Mars is so big that it's not even going to notice. Um, but it'll be enough to give us that extra push that we need to increase the size of our orbit all the way out to the asteroid belt. Another interesting thing about this mission to me is uh, you're also going to be using a, a fairly new type of communication system, uh, the deep space optical com communication system, which is using lasers, correct? Can you tell, tell us a bit about that? That sounds fascinating. Yeah, that's a really exciting um, technology demonstration we're doing. So um, up until now, the sort of traditional way that we've communicated with spacecraft is just um, through traditional um, radios and obviously that um, wh whether you're communicating through radios or through lasers you're going to be communicating at the speed of light um, but by using lasers you can fit a whole lot more data um, into a, a, a little segment than you can if you were doing it with the radio so um, we're going to be able to, to transmit a lot more data than we would be if we would be doing um, traditional radio. We're not using DSOC for the primary means of communication for this mission because it is a technology demonstration. So we want to have our tried and true heritage technology on there that we're depending on for getting our telemetry. But if DSOC proves successful, then perhaps there will be missions in the future that will use laser communication for their primary means. And I saw two of my favorite places are involved in that uh, that testing of of the concept of DSOC, as you put it. Um, there we go with our acronyms again. Huh? <laughs> um, it's it's the the wonderful my old friend the Hale Telescope on Mount Palomar, uh, and I just think it's really cool that um, you're using the the Hale uh, Telescope, <laughs> which is you know a, a childhood hero to me as a kid <laughs> growing up loving astronomy. Oh, cool. Okay, well, let's move on and talk about um, the science payload. Uh, what kind of instruments does the spacecraft have on it? Psyche is going to be flying a magnetometer to measure the magnetic field around um, the asteroid. If there is a magnetic field, then it would be indicative that Psyche might be the core of a protoplanet. Um, we've also got a gamma ray and neutron spectrometer, which measure the chemical composition of the asteroid. We think it's made primarily of iron and nickel, but the spectrometer will be able to tell us that for sure. Um, and then finally, we've got the multispectral imagers, um, which are essentially cameras, but we'll be able to um, more clearly characterize the surface of the asteroid. 
So um, the, one of the major goals of this, of course, is to, to investigate for the first time a, a very metal-rich asteroid, which is what we think Psyche is. And, and I, just an interesting uh, thing I'd like to know from you as engineers, it it's always fascinates me the role that engineers play because you are the ones that make the science possible. Um, the scientists rely on the engineers to, to provide that engineering expertise and able to do the science and find out the things that the whole purpose of the mission is. And I'm just wondering for both of you, um, what what kind of take do you have on your interest in the science of the mission? You know, because you're, you're so deeply involved in the engineering. But I'd also like to know, you know, what you think about the investigation of this asteroid just, you know, personally. I think it's super interesting. Um, my mom is was a geologist or is a geologist. So growing up, um, I always kind of was exposed to sort of she would point out different rock formations and, and things. Um, well, when 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 we were on hiking or up in the mountains, pointing out the different formations and uh, the different minerals that we would see on the ground. So it's really cool to be able to apply that but way out into space. It's sort of like combining um, my passion with hers. She was really excited when I told her we were flying a spectrometer because she has used that in her work before to characterize um, the, the mineralogy under the ground. Just wondering, like, you know, it must be very rewarding, like, to be able to, to take your expertise and then see what the scientists do with it. Yeah, that is, that is really rewarding um, to be able to sort of be the facilitator of of scientists being able to sort of see their dreams come to fruition. Our principal investigator, um, Dr. Lindy Elkins-Tanton, um, is, I, I love talking to her because she's always so passionate about the science. And so being able to be part of the team that sort of makes that a reality um, is really rewarding. Very cool. Okay. Um, you're both fairly young engineers there at, at JPL, which is like one of the world's most amazing places to work. Any advice you'd have to, you know, young people that are thinking about, oh, I'd like to do something like that um, for, for their uh, futures to, to possibly do something like what you do? Paige, we'll start with you. Yeah, I would say just uh, don't let anybody tell you that you can't accomplish something because you're um, young or inexperienced. I mean, I think Kaylin and I both started not really knowing a whole lot about this field or, or engineering and then pursued our degrees. And that sort of slowly led us step by step to where we are today. Kaylin? Yeah, I'll just echo what Paige said. Don't let anyone tell you you can't be an engineer. Um, some people might try to tell you, especially if you're a woman or you don't look like the typical engineer in people's minds, uh, but keep trying for it. And really persistence is key. I interviewed at JPL three times before I eventually got my offer. Um, I tried to get an internship pretty much every summer that I was applying and didn't get one until finally my last summer in between my senior year and my graduate degree. So uh, just keep trying. Perseverance, definitely, definitely an important uh, attribute if you want to be go into engineering and science. Uh, yeah, I like that. Oh, okay. Um, last question. What do you like most about your work? What do you enjoy the most about your, your work, Paige? Um, I enjoy seeing the system come together. Um, I think that's the most rewarding part of our team on ATLO is that we get all of the components of the spacecraft from all of the different subsystems and all of the different domain leads who deliver their 
hard work to us. And we're the ones who get to finally integrate it with the rest of the system and sort of see the entire thing come to life. And so just physically seeing, watching in the high bay as the spacecraft has been built up from um, just the the wide panel, as we called it, that it was two years ago up until the full encapsulated satellite that it is today has been incredible. Kaylin? Yeah, I really like the challenges that our work presents us with. Um, every day, it seems like there's a new problem that we have to solve, um, something new that we need to work on. And I just think it's really fun to kind of treat it as a puzzle and put all the pieces together because space travel is not easy. A lot of things have to go right in order for us to succeed. So I like being able to uh, work on that and have that challenge every day. And of course, the first and one of the most important steps once you've you know accomplished all the work you've put in is, is launch day. How excited are you both for that? So excited. I am so excited. <laughs> I think uh, I think we're probably both going to cry. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's after all of the the accumulation of hard work that we've put in and the time that we've put in, seeing it. I mean, it's got to be like akin to watching your child go off to college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all I can say is you won't be the first ones to to cry at launch. <laughs> I, I know a lot of scientists and engineers that are just it's an overwhelming moment. So best of luck to you both. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thanks to our guests, NASA JPL engineers Paige Arthur and Kaylin Oldani. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our look at the Psyche mission as we turn our attention to the scientific aspects with a member of the science team, Sam Corville. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. Now let's turn our attention to the science aspect of the Psyche mission and why the asteroid 16 Psyche was chosen as the target. Our guest is Sam Corville, a member of the Psyche science team as a graduate student at Arizona State University. Sam, welcome to Blue Dot. Hi, great to talk with you. Psyche's a really interesting asteroid. What a what an amazing target for this yeah. mission. It's so cool that it's like the, the name of the mission and the name of the asteroid are the same, but it can be a bit confusing. But we're talking about the asteroid. Tell us a bit about it, like classify that asteroid. How is it different from other ones? So it's really unique in the sense that it appears from Earth-based observations. So we're looking at it from very far away. Um, that it is metal rich. And so I don't know if you've ever seen like uh, meteorites on Earth, but we, see, we find a lot of meteorites and some of them are, they're metal. Yeah. And so somewhere out there, there's gotta be a body made of metal that's out there. So we think Psyche could be a metal rich object, something we've never visited before. Yeah, and some of those metal uh, meteorites are just beautiful. The, the Widmannstätten patterns are just gorgeous. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And then there's the ones that have the mixture of the metal and then the green crystals, mm -hmm. the uh, olivine in them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this asteroid was one of the one of the earlier ones d discovered. I know its name is 16 Psyche, which means that it was the 16th asteroid discovered. Uh, so we've known about it for a while. Um, why was it chosen as the target for this mission? 
Um, really because, so two things from a distance, uh, it was classified based on looking at its, what we can see from telescopes, an M-type asteroid. Um, and M, M is for metal? Dense. Yes, yeah. Um, so it appears to be metal rich, and it appears to be very dense. So again, corroborating metal being denser than than like rocks you pick up on the ground. So um, it should, we are hopeful that it's a metal rich asteroid. And again, we haven't been to a uh, metal asteroid before. We think they have to be out there. We're looking for them. Um, and so why is this important? Well, the inside of the the earth we think has a metal core but we can never get there we can never get to the core of the earth it's too deep you could never drill a hole to get to the metal core of the earth but 16 psyche out there a metal object we think it used to be the metal core of a bigger object that's how we think the it we you form metal rich objects and so this is our chance to go see a core up close and personal. I've read that there are some there's some different and competing versions of how psyche may have formed. Can you run through some of the scenarios of that for us? Yeah, so the the fiducial model, the the idea that we think that's happened to psyche, our best guess so far is that it is uh it was a small uh protoplanet composition perhaps similar to that of the other rocky planets in our solar system. And so it heats up, it starts to melt, and the metal separates from the rest of the rock. The metal goes into the core, and then you have rock on the exterior in a shell, kind of like the Earth is a rocky mantle over a metal core. But then Psyche got hit by something. The asteroid got hit by something that stripped away its rocky mantle, leaving the iron core exposed. And so that's the model that we're, the, the hypothesis that we're going to test with the spacecraft. If we get there, we have a bunch of things we're looking for. And if we see, well, is that story correct or not? Well, that's an interesting point. But absolutely, as you said, there's other things that could have happened too. The impactor could have been completely devastating. It could have completely... Um, shattered and then would have to the body would have to come back together um reaccrete it also might be possible that it never never melted to begin with and you bring up a really interesting point there that you know the 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 great thing about missions like this is that you get to test the hypothesis you get to go see for yourself you, you know you you get to go there and explore this place what are some of the the scientific instruments that you're most excited about that might unravel this to see if you're, you know, we're right or, or we have to alter what we think about Psyche? Well, there's lots of great instruments on the spacecraft. My favorite, personally, is the magnetometer. So that's going to measure if there's a magnetic field around Psyche. So I don't know the last time you've picked up a compass, but on Earth, Earth's got a nice magnetic field. Um, you get your compass, and it aligns with the magnetic field of Earth. Um, so what causes that magnetic field is the molten core uh, generating a magnetic field on Earth. On Psyche, if Psyche was ever, if it ever had melted, creating, creating an iron core, it would also be liquid metal, and that could generate a magnetic field too, long, long ago. That now, of course, if it is a core, it's definitely solid. 
but the magnetic field that it once had can be locked within the metal or other rocks. So it could have a magnetic remnant or magnetic remnants. Like paleomagnetism on Earth? Yeah. So like the magnetic field signature is locked into that, that rock that was once molten and had iron in it. Yes, exactly. So um, there could be this uh, remnant magnetization from when it used to be a molten core. And so that signature is what we're going to look for with the magnetometer. If we detect a magnetic field, um, that's a pretty good, pretty good evidence that it was once a molten core of a protoplanet. Let's look a, li a little bit at the the big picture of asteroids, of Psyche being one kind. Um, characterize, you know, the variety of asteroids there, and why why they're important to study. Yeah, so there are many different types of asteroids, and broadly, we think they match up with the many different types of meteorites we've found on Earth, and they're all. All these meteorites, all these asteroids, they're telling different stories about different times and locations in the solar system. Um, so there are meteorites called chondrites. They are very primitive material. It looks like they're the, some of the first solids to have formed in the solar system. They never melted. Um, they never uh, heated up very much. And so these things um, are from very primitive objects, telling about the very earliest times in the solar system. If you get a bunch of those together into a bigger object, and then the object starts heating, and then it melts, um, then you start processing that material, melting it. Then you can get achondrites, um, and then even uh, if you process it more, heat it up more, you can get a differentiated object where the again that's where the metal melts out and you form a core and then that's where you can get the metal rich meteorites from that's the model we have the idea that we have for how um we have these different classes of meteorites that we've discovered on earth describe what it would look like for for the average person this is probably an object that would be shaped like a what a potato psyche yeah yeah. So Psyche is, yes, it's, it's an odd shape. It's not perfectly spherical. Um, yeah, space potato is a great way to describe it. Um, I've also heard um, Lindy described, describe it as because it's, it's tilted. So it's, it's um, rotating on its side. So it kind of turns around, it flies around the sun, um, rotating on its side like a rotisserie chicken. Yeah, what 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 else would you like to know? Kind of like a lumpy football orbiting the orbiting the sun. Yeah. And uh an interesting question that I heard uh in a press conference for that you guys held about Psyche and and the upcoming mission which is everybody is excited about is uh somebody asked would would you see metal shiny, you know, a shiny looking thing when you go out there? Um I saw that there are some different craters on Psyche, and some are some are kind of bright, and some are kind of dark. Would would what would we see a shiny metallic nature to it, just visually, or what do you think? That's a tough question. Um, Why we go there, right? <laughs> I certainly think it's it's 
well, we should say anything's possible. We don't know. We haven't yeah. been there yet. That's why we're going. Sure. It's exciting. Um, but it's also possible that no, no, uh, because you could imagine it's being battered. It's being hit by other mm -hmm. things. It's It's been sitting out there for billions of years. And it's so and it's as you, it's not a perfect sphere. It's been it's been hit. It's been battered. Other impactors, other asteroids, other objects have been hitting it and leaving material on it. And also, if you've ever looked at uh, some of the metallic meteorites uh, that we have, they're not shiny until you cut them and polish them. Uh, so, but it purely depends. We don't know. We we there is lots of research going on right now. What are the surface processes that happen? Because no other body have we found has metal exposed on the surface to be weathered by space. So, lots of open questions. Well, and again, that's that's why that's why we have the mission to go investigate these interesting things. What Precisely. what are uh, based on what we know from uh, ground based observations, and and let's talk about that for a moment. What are what are some of the ways we have studied psyche in the past? What what are some of the observations that have been made? What kind of instruments have we used? Ooh, well, this is certainly outside my expertise, but there are many different telescopic observations. Um, first and foremost, you can just track it. You can follow, see where it's going, get an idea of its orbit, see you could by just checking minute differences in how the orbit changes. Um, you can estimate its density, how dense it is. Um, and then there's we can look at it in different uh with different telescopes, so um, a different wavelengths of light and radio waves, like radar, um, optical. And I think even recently, the James Webb Telescope looked at it. Um, infrared. Which is exciting. But unfortunately, I don't, I don't know. Yes, precisely. But I, don't, I, I know nothing of what they, they learned. Um, but by looking at these, for example, with the radar waves, it looks very bright. So different wavelengths can look brighter or dimmer, and that tells you something about the, com uh, the, the material that's reflecting back the, the energy. And so with the radar waves, Psyche looks very bright, which is what metal would look like. So that's one another piece of evidence suggesting that perhaps the surface of Psyche is metal-rich. Do we have any idea of what metals we're talking about, or just iron, nickel, or could there possibly be Precisely, other yeah. other metals? Well, iron and nickel by far the most abundant. By far the most abundant iron, um, then nickel. The rest are mainly uh, trace elements. It, and I've, you know, of course, there's been talk over the years about mining the asteroids for metals. And, uh, you know, until you know exactly what you're dealing with, that's kind of, you know, you, pie in the sky. Um, I would imagine that Psyche is kind of the, one of the first missions that will kind of answer some of those questions to see if that's a viable thing to do in the future. Well, maybe. So more of where that comes from is you can look at the metal meteorites we have in our collections. And so, again, they're mostly iron, then nickel, but then they do have some portions of precious metals, like very slight amounts. But then where we come about talking about, oh, there's so much to mine, Psyche is very large, 100 kilometers. So if there was a way to extract the trace metals in such a large object and bring them back economically, you could consider space mining. But yeah, we're interested in the science at this stage. Sure. I'm just saying that's maybe something far in the future where, you know, that's 
that's one of the interesting. There are certainly people uh, very interested in that problem, and there's fun economic problems too. If you were able to extract all of those precious metals and brought them back, brought them back, you would certainly um, mess with the precious metals market. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I never thought about that because there's, you know, it's based on the amount of there is on Earth, and now now you've changed that. That's interesting. Okay, um, I'd like to know a little bit about your personal interests. How did you get first get interested in asteroids and, and get on to the Psyche science team? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I'm a graduate student at Arizona State University. I'm doing a, a PhD in planetary science. I, when I was uh, younger, in my undergraduate days, I did a NASA internship. Um, I was studying the geophysics, the interior of the moon, got me super interested in moons, planetary, asteroid interiors, and how they evolve over time. So kind of telling stories about how we build planets, how we build asteroids, how we build moons, how we build planets, how do they uh, form and evolve over time. And so Psyche is just a great, if it's a metal core, it's like, it's a it's a story. We have an idea. We have a guess. But this is our chance to test a great story in planetary science. How we're building the interiors of planets. Yeah, and of course this this mission, Psyche, is going to be launching soon. I'm just curious, uh, as as a member of the science team, what's the vibe like amongst your colleagues? Are people starting to get pretty excited about this? Oh yeah, definitely. We're all super excited. We've um, for those who can, made travel arrangements to go see the launch. It's also a little bit nerve-wracking, uh, but all super excited. Um, and then, of course, right, but launch, that's big deal, but then we got to wait till 2029 to get there. Yeah, it takes it's a it's an interesting you know route to get out there, and it takes a while. And the propulsion system, which we've talked about a bit on this program, is is fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Are there observations and data that you are going to be able to collect um, prior to getting there, or it just you have to wait till you till twenty twenty nine to actually do any science? That's fascinating. I'm sure there are more observations from Earth that'll be conducted while it's in transit. Most of the instruments on the spacecraft are really valuable when we get mm -hmm. there. Um, uh, so I will be waiting until it gets there, and even once it gets there. Um, the spacecraft will be there for 26 months, I believe, and it starts at an orbit that's uh, far away from the asteroid. And then after being there, characterizing the asteroid for a while, it's going to move closer. And then after being there for a while, it's going to move closer still. And I want the magnetic data from the closest orbits. So I'll be waiting a while. <laughs> so Sam, how, how close will Psyche get to Psyche? Um, well, when it gets to its last orbit, it's going to be about 75 kilometers. So, um, yeah, about half its uh, half its radius. And that's when you'll get your magnetic data yeah, that you're so interested in. Because the magnetic field, when you're if you've ever you know played around with fridge magnets, the closer you bring the magnet, the stronger the force, the stronger the magnetic magnetic field. Um, and so we want it, the closer we get to the asteroid, the stronger the magnetic field, the best uh, magnetic field data we'll record. 
All right. Well, thanks so much for sharing, you know, this information about this science of the psyche mission. And uh, what do you enjoy most about working on this? Well, I get to work with a lot of experts who have been doing this a long time. And obviously, this is very, this is early in my career. So it's just really exciting to see the experts who have had these ideas about how plants are formed for so long. And now they finally get to test it. Um, and it's just super exciting to be a part of that process and learn how it's done so that uh, later in my career, I can hopefully do the same thing with some other science question. All right. Well, uh, Sam Corville, uh, scientist on the Psyche mission, thanks for sharing all this cool information and best of luck with the mission. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks to Sam Corville, Arizona State University graduate student and member of the Psyche Mission Science Team. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us, because when we come back, we'll examine a new laser optical communication system that Psyche will be demonstrating. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back, and thanks for listening. Now let's find out about a revolutionary new optical communication system that the Psyche mission will be demonstrating with A.B. Biswas. A.B. is a senior engineer specializing in optical communications at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He joins us from there now. A.B. Biswas, welcome to Blue Dot. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I'd like to know... Uh, a bit about this really interesting technology. Uh, first of all, this is a, a demonstration, right? This is not the That's primary right. way that you're going to be uploading and, and downlinking uh, information from the spacecraft. It's a, it's a demonstration. That's right. But it's really interesting. This is, this is the first time we've ever used optical or laser communications uh, beyond Earth-Moon, right? That is correct. And what's the advantages of using lasers over, you know, standard radio transmissions? Uh, yeah, so from a physics standpoint, you know, um, the lasers are in the optical frequency band. So higher frequency uh, usually can serve as a higher data rate career. That's just uh, physics. And, and so by migrating to optical frequencies, we can get a big boost in data rates. So much like, you know, optical fiber cables uh, have helped upgrade our ability to use communications here on Earth, you're, it's the same kind of principle, right? Yes. And if, you, if, if, if I can go one step further, so mm -hmm. basically what I said about the high frequency light waves, so you can make the beam very narrow. So, you know, it's a much narrower beam than, let's say, radio uh, beam coming from deep space. So when the beam is narrow, you can imagine that the all the power in the beam is, is concentrated in a much smaller area. So we call it that you have higher power density. And so you can send more information with the uh, you know, additional power density that you have. And can you tell us a little bit about the actual um, components on the spacecraft? Yeah, so the spacecraft, basically the heart of the BSOC system is uh, what we traditionally would call a telescope. It's an off-axis telescope. But it's especially designed to be able to receive and transmit laser uh, laser signals. And what that means is that it's got built into it very sensitive photon counting detectors. Uh, it has uh, 
custom kind of laser, uh, you know, that uh, that has uh, some special properties for being very photon efficient in, in sending uh, data down. And it also has a host of custom optics, uh, actuators, uh, and controllers, and of course, uh, custom software. And so this whole assembly then is able to sit on the spacecraft and the spacecraft can point, uh, you know, well enough for a radio beam, but it's not adequate for a laser beam. So within that pointing uncertainty of the spacecraft, uh, all these components in concert allow us to achieve, you know, the pointing needed for the narrow laser beam. And then the other aspect of this is, you know, as a demonstration project, uh, going into the future, we're going to need uh, higher rates of transmission, aren't we? Because, you know, the high definition uh, imaging and, you know, the, the things that we want to do in the future for future missions, this is going to be really important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, for example, if you can imagine you're sending uh, astronauts to Mars distances, you know, you want to be in constant communications with them. There's bioinformation. There's all kinds of information that needs to be exchanged. You'd also like to get streaming video, you know, high definition video back from, you know, Mars. Uh, like from the rovers nowadays, you get like, you know, individual frames, which are very nice and very uh, informative. But if you could get those in a streaming form, you can imagine how um, how we could enhance the the future science and exploration. So yes, so there's a demand for that, and though radios have served us uh, very very well and they're very robust, but you know the radios are running out of bandwidth. I mean we're we're approaching the bandwidth limit of, of what radios can do, and so migration to a higher frequency, like an optical frequency, is almost uh, you know called for. Uh, yeah. And okay, let's talk about here on Earth because I found this really interesting. Uh, two very historic facilities are going to be a part of this: uh, the the Table Mountain Observatory near Wrightwood, uh, which mm -hmm. is right next to the San Andreas Fault. Really, really cool place. I've been there before. Uh, right. And and then Mount Palomar, home of what used to be the world's largest telescope, the two hundred inch Hale reflector. Um, tell us about the roles that they play in this, because I found that to be really interesting. Yeah, yeah, a very good question. So let me start off by saying that one thing very unique about these optical links, uh, at least from Mars distances, is that it's very interactive, unlike uh, unlike radio links. So it's kind of a cooperative, uh, assisted sort of pointing. So we have the two assets that you named, the one in Table Mountain, we call it OCTAL, which stands for Optical Communications Telescope Laboratory. So it has a one meter mirror. And from there, we transmit a laser beam. That's how we start the link. We transmit a laser beam to the spacecraft, and that telescope can point accurately enough that if we know the ephemeris or the you know the position location of the spacecraft, we can illuminate it. And so, once the spacecraft is also pointed towards us, the 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 laser comm terminal, which is this telescope that I mentioned before, it has a little bit of its own actuation and uh, capability to orient itself so it, it can actually see that beam and, and detect it. And, and the beam can be very faint and it can still detect it because of its very sensitive detectors. Once it detects that beam, it has the ability to lock onto that beam. And so both the Earth and, and the spacecraft are moving, but they're actively tracking each other. And once we establish that track, then it's possible to direct the downlink beam to where the receiver will be by the time the light reaches Earth. So, they, in other words, that's called a point-ahead angle. 
So if I see the beacon coming from some location and I have to point my downlink laser beam a little ahead, it's something like skeet shooting. And, and so that uh, pointed ahead beam will then arrive at Palomar and the five meter aperture will be used, uh, or 200 inch aperture will be used to collect that light and bring it onto very sensitive detectors. These detectors were specially developed at JPL uh, they're called superconducting uh, nanowire single photon detectors. They're, they're, they're kept at a very cold temperatures around close to one Kelvin, and they can pick up individual photon signals. And what we record is the time of arrival of all these photons. And the laser comes in pulses. So by noting the times of arrivals when we get these pulses, then there's some very smart... Um, software, firmware, signal processing, basically, that can look at those time of arrivals and, and sort of decode those time of arrivals and convert it into information, whether the information is an image or just data, whatever it is. Wow, that's interesting. So Table Mountain acts as your, like, connects you to the spacecraft, right. and then the spacecraft sends the the data that it has to Palomar. That's, re that's really interesting. I, I find yeah. that that's that's really yeah. cool. When will this uh, actually? When will you start to demonstrate this technology on on the way out or when? Yes, on the way out. So the spacecraft launches sometime between October fifth and October twenty fifth. That's the launch period, and then uh, about uh, sixteen to twenty days after launch, we'll start commissioning the the DSOC uh, payload, and uh, it'll take a take a few weeks to do that. Uh, because we we operate at a weekly cadence, so you know we operate on on Monday nights uh, every week, and so after it, after three or four of those weekly sessions, we'll be able to check everything out, and then so sometime in early November we should early to mid November we should start a, a weekly cadence of these uh, communication sessions. Very cool. So you you'll be starting to you know run your experiment right away during this mission. That's correct, and. We, our primary mission will last for approximately two years. So by September 2025, our primary mission will be completed. And of course, the Psyche spacecraft journey continues. It goes on for much longer. Abe, what's your favorite uh, aspect of your work on this? Uh, this is a very multidisciplinary kind of work that involves interaction of subject matter experts from many different fields. And uh, we all learn from each other, and uh, uh, everybody's worked uh, extremely hard to make this happen, and there's still work to go. Uh, we, we actually have to operate this link still, so I'm looking forward to that. Well, thanks so much for joining us to tell us all about this, A.B. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks again to our guests, Psyche Mission Engineers Paige Arthur and Kaylin Oldani from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, science team member Sam Corville from Arizona State University, and NASA JPL Senior Engineer A.B. Biswas. You can learn more about the Psyche Mission at psyche.asu.edu. And now it's time for our teachable moment when from time to time our producer Matt Fiddler asks me a question and I do my best to answer it. What do you got for me this time, Matt? Well, Dave, you know, we were just talking about this asteroid named Psyche, but I want to go even more basic. What exactly are asteroids? How are they different from things like comets and meteoroids? Ah, well, asteroids are basically rocky bodies. Um, meteoroids are little pieces of asteroids that, you know, basically can... Uh, 
reach Earth. They, they hit the Earth and burn up in our atmosphere and sometimes fall to Earth and become meteorites that you can pick up. Those are pieces of asteroids. Comets are small icy bodies that have long elliptical orbits that take them way out in the outer solar system. Um, but the main belt asteroids, this is kind of interesting, if you took all of them, there's about a million asteroids in the solar system, but if you took all the main belt asteroids between Mars and Jupiter, like where Psyche is, um, that material makes up less than the mass of the moon. So uh, they're, they're the remnants from the formation of the planets, really. So they are not likely to gather up and form a new planet or large asteroid no. body? No. No, there's just not enough stuff there. They're, they're the leftovers from the formation of the planets, which makes them interesting to scientists to look at, like, what are the building blocks that made the planets? Uh, and here's something interesting. You watch science fiction movies. I know you like stuff like that. Um, and you mm -hmm. watch, you know, spaceships going through and there's, you know, dodging asteroids. If you were out <laughs> in the main asteroid belt, the thickest part, and standing on an asteroid like Vesta, uh, and you had lights on all the other asteroids, you wouldn't even see any. They're so far away. They're so so spread apart that, you know, if you just randomly travel through the asteroid belt, the chances are you would never encounter one. Sir, the possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720 to 1. Never tell me the odds. Wow, um, we need to update C-3PO because <laughs> the odds are much better. Yeah, well, that's why they call it science fiction, Matt. Or fantasy. <laughs> well, thanks, Dave. That clears up a lot. I appreciate it. You're welcome. you have a question for Dave that you'd like to hear answered on Blue Dot's Teachable Moment, let us know by contacting us through Blue Dot's show page at mynspr.org. Just look for the programs menu and click on Blue Dot. You may hear your question and Dave's answer on the show. production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Our theme music, Big Wave Dave, is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. <laughs> <laughs>